Okay, there we go. There we go. Go to Acts chapter 2 with me, please. It's good to see you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Well, I know John mentioned it, but they've made a, a wee bit of a mess back there. And uh, so we're, we're moving right along, though. It's coming up. You realize we're six weeks from consummating and coming together officially as one church. And um, we could not be more excited about that. And uh, in fact, we'd, we'd rather just, you know, if this building project gets done sooner, I say we just bump the date up. We just get her, get her done, right? Get her done. Can we all say that together? Get her done. I like it. Larry the Cable Guy is going to be down in Camden this weekend. So in the spirit of Larry the Cable Guy, I delete that from the video. But anyway, good to see everybody tonight. And uh, please excuse the mess, but it's coming along. We're getting there little by little. This is not the finished product on the front of the stage, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Um, but anyhow, and uh, I think it'd be okay to tell you this. Um, I didn't ask permission, but it's okay. We're going, we, uh, we already met with an architect to hopefully start designing a new auditorium. Is that okay to say that, guys? Um, so, I mean, I, like I said, I didn't ask. <laughs> but, so we're excited. We're excited. Just a lot of good things going on. And so Acts chapter number two, I began last week. We, uh, last week we dealt with the, uh, the phenomenon known in the scriptures as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, there was a lot of content to cover there just because I was, you know, you have to set a lot of things in order because certain parts of the Bible have been grossly misapplied or misinterpreted in some cases. And, um, and I think the baptism of the Holy Spirit is one of those phrases or terms that has been um, just, just sort of used loosely when in reality there's something very specific uh, that the Bible talks about in reference to that. What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit? And so we discussed that a little bit last week. And then uh, tonight, uh, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into, into Acts chapter 2, specifically into the what we would understand to, in, in general terms, to be the power of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work in the world today? And so really, this is a series on the church, um, but it's, it's really impossible to understand how a biblical church should operate without understanding how the Holy Spirit works in and through the church. And it's, it's a sad indictment that, that we, have, we have learned to do church without the Holy Spirit. We've learned how to function and operate, and, and, and it can be done. And it's an unfortunate epidemic that we have, we're, we're masterful, really. Uh, through employing programs and, and, and personalities and, and different means uh, to, to build a church when the reality is the Bible says unless the Lord builds the house we labor in vain. If it's not a work of God's spirit then um, my vote is to close the doors and go about our business. I want to be involved in what God's involved in and I believe that God's at work and I said this on Sunday, and I want to repeat it here tonight. I, I genuinely believe with all my heart, it's not any kind of uh, grandstanding statement on my behalf, but I genuinely believe that we are in, in, in the process of observing perhaps the greatest move of God in our community in history. And, I, and I'm not saying that to dismiss anything that's ever happened, but God is working in an, in an unprecedented fashion in, in this community, and I think we should pay attention to that. 
and, 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 and I think we should be sensitive in listening to the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, let's dive in this evening uh, and begin reading. We'll start here in Acts 2, verse number 1, and, uh, and then we'll, we're just going to get as far as we get tonight, okay? I'm not going to make any commitments. I know you guys like me to try to preach at least an hour and a half, and I, I just I can't do that this evening, so I'm going to try to keep it to about 45 minutes, all right? Acts chapter 2, verse number 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all with one accord in one place. That's wild, isn't it? There were 120 of them, and they had spent 10 days together in a prayer meeting. Uh, it's hard to get people nowadays to concentrate for 10 minutes in, in a prayer meeting. They, they, they concentrated for 10 days in Jerusalem because Jesus had instructed his disciples to, to wait in Jerusalem. He said, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So they knew that there was something more on the horizon that they needed in order to carry out the work that they had been commissioned to do. The disciples obviously were flawed men just like the rest of us, but they, they, they at least had been in the presence of Jesus long enough to know that the work he was calling them to was so much bigger than they are and that they couldn't just sort of you know, draw it out or map it out or outline it out. They needed the, 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 the presence of God. And so they were one accord in one place. Verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Is my microphone loud? Is it loud? Can you cut me down just a little bit? I love to hear myself talk, but not that much. All right, uh, but verse number six, it says, and, and, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these men are not drunk, or for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. And then he goes on to quote from the prophet Joel. We're going to stop right there, but we'll cover most of the chapter this evening. Father, thank you for our time that you've given to us. Lord, we pray that you would silence our hearts and our phones this evening as we gather and help us to, to fix our minds intently uh, on the truth of your word and help us to specifically listen to the voice of your spirit who speaks to us and is alive and is, and is at work in, in the world today and specifically in our lives. Father, I believe with all my heart that you want to do something in this place with these people. And God, we pray as we come to a point of surrender, we yield our hearts. Father, we pray that you'd cleanse us of sin. Father, forgive us of arrogance. Forgive us for thinking that we can do your work in the energy of our flesh. Forgive us, Father, for the presumptuous idea 
that we can operate and, and complete anything good in this world without your outpoured spirit on our lives. We pray that you would guide us in all truth. We pray that you'd give us wisdom this evening as we dig into this, this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter number 2, what's it all about, right? So last week we talked a little bit about the day of Pentecost, and, and I kind of walked you through. Pentecost was, uh, or still is really, uh, a feast that celebrated by the Jews. Penny means 50, and so it was the 50th day uh, after the Feast of First Fruits. So uh, for, for one thing, Acts chapter 2, uh, we see that Acts 2, or the day of Pentecost, the events that unfolded in Acts chapter 2, set the stage for, for what God was doing in the world, not only for that day and time, but for the rest of time as we know it. So what, what God did in Acts chapter 2 echoes throughout, throughout the hallways of time that God began a work in Acts 2 that will continue on until one day the trumpet sounds and Jesus calls us home. So I want you to notice in verse number 16, uh, the Apostle Paul begins to quote from the prophet Joel. This is actually a quote from Joel 28 through 32. And in verse 17, here's, here's the quote. It says, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, so Simon Peter, the apostle Peter, stood to speak that day, and when he stood to speak, his focus was not on, on what they had in that subjective moment experience. And that statement is important because so much attention is given to, to the event that, that, that unfolded, the, the manifestation of the Spirit that unfolded in Acts 2. We pay so much attention to that, but the reality is when Simon Peter stood to preach that day, he, he really didn't, didn't even draw attention to, to the manifestations. In fact, uh, he, 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 all he said in reference to what actually happened was he, he dismissed the skeptics by saying, hey, these guys aren't drunk, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, Right? It's one of the funniest statements in the New Testament. That's how we know the early church wasn't Baptist, by the way. But uh, anyway, uh, but, but, but the, only, the only attention that, that, that he brought to, to the actual manifestation uh, that, that, again, we bring a lot of attention to, but Peter that day when he preached, he just said, hey, look, these guys ain't drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. Uh, and, and so instead of taking the time to explain or verify the experience, he directed their attention to the infallible words recorded in the Bible, which, by the way, is what we all need to get back to. Experience go and experiences are subject to interpretation. God's word, however, is, is the bedrock. It's the cornerstone of all that we believe in. And I know what people say. Skeptics say, well, the Bible is subject to interpretation. You can make it say anything it wants to. No, you can't. You can make the Bible say anything you want to to somebody who doesn't know the Bible. But if you're a student of the Word of God, somebody cannot make the Bible say whatever they want it to say because God's Word never contradicts itself. And so the Apostle Peter, instead of taking the time to really draw attention to the experience in the moment, he said, guys, this is what God's Word has told us. 
This was prophesied in the book of Joel. And so he, he brings them back to the Bible. And so then the second thing that's unique uh, about this passage is the fact that on the day of Pentecost, God's Spirit was poured out as promised in a threefold demonstrable phenomenon. And I want to take a few minutes to talk about this. Because when we examine what the Holy Spirit does in the church in a New Testament context, and I'll speak briefly about how the Spirit moved in the Old Testament, but, but when we look in our dispensation of time, we are living in what is known as the church age. When we, when we examine and study how God's Spirit works today, we see three fundamental ways that the Holy Spirit works. Number one, last week we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as was prophesied by John. John said in Matthew chapter 3, verse number 11, he said, Behold, there comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to unloose, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is the spirit baptism that was prophesied by John the Baptist, and it happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit baptized the New Testament church. They were immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now, as that applies to us, and I pointed this out again briefly last week, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12 explains that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we were baptized into one body by his Spirit. That's not talking about physical water baptism. That's a reference to mystical spirit baptism, how that we become part of the universal kingdom, the universal family of God. You can travel anywhere in the world and meet another believer, and he or she is your brother or your sister in Christ because we've been all baptized into one body. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But then we also see this, this other concept uh, concerning the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and, and we could simply just title this the leading or the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So if you study this for yourself, and I would encourage you to do so, but if you get into, into the New Testament, you begin to study how the Spirit of God works, this, this is the most common way you will find the Spirit working in the lives of believers. The Bible tells us to be led by the Spirit of God. In fact, in the book of Romans, it says as many as have been born of the Spirit are led by the Spirit. When we surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit, we talked about Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 on Sunday. Paul said, I beg you, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice that you may know what's the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What's he talking about? He's explaining that God has a purpose for every believer, and if we surrender our lives to him, if we will yield ourselves, God's Spirit will lead us and help us to understand what his perfect will is for us. So it's the most commonly referred to aspect of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. And so we'll talk more about this in just a minute. But the third way uh, that we see the Holy Spirit working in believers' lives in the New Testament is what we would call the filling or the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Are you all familiar with that type of terminology? So the filling or the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, we referenced it last Wednesday night. Uh, Jesus said to the disciples, he said, uh, but you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So when Jesus talked about the church being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we see that there was a specific purpose for that infilling. It wasn't so they get goosebumps and good feelings and just feel this sort of this, this aura of God's presence, although that's wonderful. But the purpose of God's Spirit being outpoured was that they would be able to carry out a work through His infilling, through His anointing, through His power that they could not do in the energy and the power of their own physicality. 
Now, I said a moment ago, I'd mention a little bit of how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. If you're a student of the Bible, uh, you know that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would give power to select individuals for a season and with a specific providential purpose, right? This was, so, so this was a strange concept to the early church because these Jewish apostles, these disciples, they understood that men like Elijah would have the power of God come upon their lives. They understood that once Elijah passed on, uh, his, his, his successor, Elisha, would, would be endued with the power of the Holy Spirit and that God would work wonders through his life. And so they were, they were adept at understanding this notion that, that prophets and priests and kings would be anointed by God's Spirit to, to carry out the purpose of God in the world. But for common people... To be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit was foreign to the New Testament church, to, the, to these apostles. These Jewish believers couldn't understand how the, the Spirit and the presence of God that was so holy that, that the high priest could only enter into his presence within the temple one time a year on the Day of Atonement. They couldn't conceptualize how that such a holy, powerful, mighty, sovereign presence could fill very common, ordinary, sinful, broken people such as themselves and such as you and I. It was a foreign concept to them. And yet we, we, we now take it for granted, unfortunately. But, but for them, they, they, they couldn't wrap their minds around this notion that God's Spirit would, would, would move and empower ordinary people. And then we see in the Gospels throughout the life of Jesus that, that the Spirit of, Spirit of God rested exclusively with Jesus and on those whom he chose to give power. So one example that you can reference, again, this is just, I'm just touching this and running because we're dealing with another passage tonight. But if you want to study Luke chapter 10, Jesus appointed 70 disciples to go out preaching the message of the kingdom. And it says that he gave them power over unclean spirits and to cast out all manner of devils. Y'all remember that? So, so the spirit of God rested solely on the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry, Jesus being the fullness of the Godhead bodily as it's, as it's articulated in Colossians chapter 2 verse number 9, exclusively held the power of the Spirit, his Spirit within his mortal body, and then Jesus would anoint his servants to go out and carry out his work. And so in Acts chapter 2, am I going too fast? I got a lot of notes tonight. We good? Are you just dismissing everything I say anyway? All right. So in Acts chapter 2, the, the Spirit of God fell on the church in an unprecedented fashion because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now think about this. We talked about how in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit would, would empower certain people for certain purposes and certain tasks, but really the presence of God, as, as the people of, under, of people of Israel understood it, God's presence was in the holy place within, within the tabernacle. And then later, once the temple was built, his presence dwelt within the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was, was situated and stationed. That's where the pre So when they thought about the presence of God, they thought about a building. They thought about an edifice. They thought about a geographical location. And they thought about a God that was too holy for unholy hands to reach out and touch. And yet now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, this is Wednesday, so I'm trying not to preach too much, but, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, now access was given 
to sinful, broken people such as I to be indwelt by the Spirit of God because of the finished work of Christ, because of His atoning sacrifice that reconciles the rebel and redeems the sinner, God's Spirit would no longer be relegated to a building or a prophet or a priest or a king. The filling of the Spirit of God was now for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so when the Spirit of God moved in Acts chapter 2, of course there was the wonder of everyone understanding the message of the gospel in their own language, but it was also mystical to their minds that, that somebody like Simon Peter, who just days and weeks before had denied even knowing Jesus, could now stand with such boldness and audacity and unction and preach in such a way that people would hear this message and their hearts would be penetrated and their lives would be changed, that God could use common men and women to carry out his work. And then when they were astonished at it, Simon Peter said, why are y'all so surprised? This was prophesied in the book of Joel. One of our prophets told us that in the last days, his spirit would be poured out and, and our young men would see visions and our old men would dream dreams and our sons and our daughters would prophesy that God would mightily move now, not through men like Elijah and Elisha and Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah, but, but through ordinary common people. God would carry out his work. So, so when we talk about the filling of the spirit, the filling of the spirit is when God empowers his children to accomplish acts Beyond their, own, beyond their own physical capabilities or means. One of my favorite verses and, and, and one passage that has become sort of the theme of our, of our church family is Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 20. It says, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now watch this. By the power that works where? In us. Man, it's almost like you guys have cliff notes here tonight. Oh, not used to the screen working. By the power that works in us, who's the us? Well, he goes ahead and explains, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. So that power that's at work in us is the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to say a few things tonight, and I want you to hear me out. I don't expect you to agree with everything, just most everything. But, but I personally believe through observation and experience over the years, and, and what I'm about to say is, is not, not relegated to one particular denomination or, 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 or type, flavor of Christianity, but, but in my humble opinion, the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood and misappropriated aspect of the Trinity. Trinity, we understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there's so much nonsense and false teaching that takes place in the name of the Holy Spirit. As, as if, now again, think with me, as if the Holy Spirit is some ambiguous specimen that, that can be twisted and molded to fit our own personal agendas. Now, now, do you understand when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about some essence that is separated from the God we know in the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God himself. In fact, the best definition I can give you for the Holy Spirit in just common terms is that the Holy Spirit is God's invisible presence in the world. Plus nothing, minus nothing. 
So when we study the Bible and we examine theology proper, theology being the study of God, when we study theology proper from Genesis to Revelation, you don't get this different image of the Holy Spirit than we understand God to be. Every attribute of God as we understand him as, a, as, a, as, a, as an infinite being, every attribute of God is applied to the Holy Spirit, such as the Bible says God is not the author of confusion. The Holy Spirit does not breed confusion in people's lives. That's a part you can amen or nod your head because it's in the Bible. God is not the author of confusion. God doesn't authorize confusion. God is orderly. Everything God has ever done has been done decently and in order. God is creative, right? It's the first thing we learn about him in Genesis chapter number one. He is creative. In the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We, earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And so that same God, right? So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, again, we often get nervous, especially, you know, some of you more orthodox people in the room, <laughs> right? You start talking about the Holy Spirit, things are going to get weird. Well, no, they're not, because the Holy Spirit is the presence of God himself. The Holy Spirit is the invisible presence of God. When you think about Jesus, think about this. The Bible says that in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So if you study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you are studying the Holy Spirit. Anything we know about God in the Scriptures applies to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God's presence. And I jokingly say, I just said this Sunday, so y'all are going to have to hear some redundancy, but, but Sunday I, ju I just said, man, we often treat the Holy Spirit like that crazy uncle that only shows up around like Thanksgiving and Christmas, and you just never know what he's going to do. We, seriously, I've been in church meetings, church services meetings, where they talk about the Holy Spirit that way. They say things like, oh, when the Holy Ghost shows up, <laughs> you ain't gonna, they never know what's going to happen. Well, there's an, there's an aspect where, listen very carefully, God ought to be able to change our agenda at any time he pleases. And we ought to always leave room for God's spirit to lead us and direct us, even if it's contrary to what we thought he was going to do. That's, that's all well and good. But we have to stop treating God's spirit like this sort of mystical, erratic, you know, sort of spontaneous never know how he's going to act, don't want to bring people around him, right? Because, boy, if the, if the Holy Ghost shows and I'm saying this very loosely, but it, we, we, we talk like that. We, we say things like, well, if the Holy Ghost shows up, you never know what's going to happen there. Things that get crazy, and I've seen people do some crazy stuff in the name of the Holy Spirit. Appreciate one amen in the back. Amen. I'm just telling you. The Holy Spirit is, 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 in my opinion, the most misunderstood aspect of the Trinity. And so, so and again, I hit this Sunday, so y'all forgive me for the redundancy, but this has been something I'm so convicted of lately, and, and that is we have to be careful what we attribute to God. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 7, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I told y'all Sunday, that's not saying, oh my God. That's using God's name when God has not authorized us to use his name. It's speaking on the authority of God when God hasn't authorized the message you're speaking. You've got to watch that. Amen. You've got to watch it. it. Listen, in Ezekiel 22, verse 28, I've preached that passage so many, many, many times, especially verse number 30. 
where Ezekiel, God said to Ezekiel, I, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap. Preach that in many conferences and camp meetings and revival meetings. But years ago, about 10 years ago, God took me back to that text and showed me exactly what his indictment was on the nation of Israel. You ready for this? God's indictment on the nation of Israel was this. Ezekiel 22, verse 28, he said, Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord God had not spoken. That's dangerous business. In fact, it's a, it's a big deal to say things like, The Holy Ghost told me to tell you. Now, I'm okay if you come to me and say, hey, I feel led to say this to you, or this is on my heart to say this to you. That's all good. But you come at me and tell me the Holy Ghost told you to say something, you better by God know for a fact that God told you to say that. Because it's dangerous to attribute the name of God to something God has not signed his name to. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And again... We've said, well, don't take the Lord's name in vain. We've taught our kids, don't say, oh, my God. And then I got in trouble when I was a kid for saying, oh, my gosh, because somebody said, oh, my gosh, was just God in a different language. And then that jacked me up. <laughs> uh, well, how am I supposed to Christian cuss if I can't say, oh, my gosh? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because we're Christians, so we, in we invent our own cuss words. <laughs> Ain't that right? We ain't using them there worldly cuss words. We're going to use Christian cuss words. We just change it up a little bit. So we say, gosh, and freaking right? But the reality is taking the name of God in vain is signing God's name to a letter God didn't write. And his indictment on the prophets of Israel says, look, he said, you are, you're, you're claiming thus saith the Lord when God didn't speak. God didn't say that. And so let's shift gears. Y'all ready? Y'all good for real? Everybody okay? So, so, so what took place in Acts 2, hear me out, was a one-time manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Now, I got in trouble. I say got in trouble. I, got, I caught some criticism for saying this one time. Somebody took what I said when I said something similar to this from Acts chapter 2. They said, he doesn't believe in the Holy Ghost. I 100% believe in the Holy Spirit. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I can't do what I do without the Holy Spirit. But what happened in Acts chapter 2 was a unique one-time manifestation. Prove me wrong. Do it again. We're going to, if you're going to Israel with me next June, I'll take you to the upper room where they prayed for 10 days. Let's go do it. Let's try to, re, let's, let's try to recreate it. It's never happened since. It's never happened since. Acts 2, that event that took place happened one time. It was a one-time manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying God doesn't still work in unique ways. I know he does. But this particular event was a one-time event that was given to verify, to enact, and empower a new dispensation of God's grace. And it can't be replicated, and it shouldn't be ignored, because it set in motion a projectile of power that even hell itself can't consume. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse number 18, our very first installment in this series? Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You, 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 listen, a gate is a defense mechanism. In fact, it's a last-ditch effort. If you're running in the gate and slamming it shut behind you, that means somebody's hot on your trail. And so the, so the implication Jesus gave in that passage, in, 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 that, in that imploration, was he said, listen, the church ought to be on the offensive attack in such a way that the devil's run and hide. And see, we've lived in such a way that we live like we're in fear. Oh, the mean old devil's going to get me. 
If I do that, the old devil's going to get after me. We ought to be getting after the devil. The devil quivers when he hears the name of Jesus. And the church ought to be such a formidable force that the gates of hell tremble in the presence of the power of God. The reason why the enemy is not afraid of the church and the reason why the enemy leaves 99.9% .9 of the churches out there alone is because we've learned how to program the church and we can go through our motions and have our committees and do our little thing and we can become nothing more than a social club and I promise you the enemy doesn't care about a social club. We ought to be so infilled with the power of God that the Spirit of God is using us in such a way that the, that the enemy can't consume and contain what God is doing. Now, now again, just to be fair, because I'm fair and balanced like your favorite news station, uh, just to be fair and balanced. Do they still say that? I don't watch TV that much. We don't have TV in our house because we're Christians. Amen. We have a TV monitor where we stream services, but anyway, God will on occasion for special purposes set forth by the counsel of his own will and in ways that can't be pragmatically explained do unusual works, right? We get that. I'm not saying that God doesn't manifest and move in unique ways. In the Old Testament, God even spoke through a donkey right? In the old King James, it says, and it threw an ass. And I'm pretty sure sometimes God, never mind. I've known preachers. Anyway, but God, God, and I'm, I'm evidence God still does that, by the way. But I'm not saying that God doesn't work in, in unique, mysterious ways on occasion. But we can't fabricate that. And it's, it's, it's just fake and it's just phony and it's kind of off-putting, really, that, that we think we can just go through a certain few different motions and, and all of a sudden, you know, we're spirit-filled. When, when the reality is God is, is going to work in, in ways that, that are unexplainable, but, but at the same time, I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm, I'm not suggesting that, that we can somehow force the hand of God or the Spirit of God to move supernaturally in our church or in our lives. But if we study Acts chapter 2, there are some key elements present that we should learn from. Because it's possible, though we can't force the hand of God, it is possible for us to create an environment that is conducive for the Holy Spirit to work. Right? You follow what I'm saying? You can't, you can't make it happen. You can't fake it. You can't fabricate it. But here's what we can do. Okay, here's what we have the power to do. We have the power to create an atmosphere that, that is conducive for God's Spirit to move. Like we, we, we understand things that, that, that Paul wrote about that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Remember that? Or, or, he, said, or he said, quench not the Spirit. He said to be led by the Spirit. He told us that we should be seeking the, the power of the Spirit to work in our lives. So though we can't force the hand of God, there are three characteristics present in the early church that we should try to adopt. Amen? They were just human beings jacked up, messed up like the rest of us. But they had some things that, that Jesus had set in place in the early church that I think we should try to emulate. First of all, you'll, if you study Acts 2, you'll find that there was this intoxicating sense of worship and praise. Did you know the Bible says that God inhabits the praise of his people? 
That's a powerful statement. That God inhabits the praise of his people. Let me challenge you to do something. I, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me preface the challenge with a question. And can, I, can y'all be honest with me? Just, just a little transparent for a second. How many of y'all struggle with, uh, with your attitude sometimes? Look at all the sinners in this room. I'm the only one with my hand not raised. <laughs> Was that all of us? Did everybody raise their hand except me? Because I meant to. I think we all struggle with our attitude. I've struggled with my attitude quite a bit lately, if I'm being honest, which I, if I ever do decide to get honest again later, I'll tell you. But, but, but I, was, I was sharing with a friend of mine as we, we were talking recently, and I said, dude, and I hope everybody has at least one or two friends like this, you can just absolutely say anything to them and they won't judge you for it. You know what I'm saying? If you just ever need to have a good cussing fit, you can call them and cuss them and they're okay. Y'all have friends like that? I don't cuss. I just assume you do. But I'm saying that type of person that you, you can share absolutely. And so I was sharing my heart with this, this friend of mine. And I said, dude, I said, because he and I kind of struggle with attitude in the same way. Like, sort of, okay, I get, I get I, I, it's going to be shocking and I don't want y'all to think less of me, but being a redhead, I've got a slight temper. Um, and I know that's shocking. But, um, I, but I told him, I said, dude, I, I want to learn how to catch it before, you know what I'm saying, like before you reach that melting point, y'all know what I'm talking about, if you have a temper, you know what I'm talking about, that melting point where you're not thinking straight anymore, nobody, come on, all you cool-headed people that ain't with me on this one, I'm going to call you next time I'm about to have a fit, and you're going to talk me off the ledge, but I was saying to him, I said, dude, I'd, I'd like to be able to catch that before it gets out of hand, like, like before I reach that point, I, I, I don't know if I coined the phrase, I, I try to be careful not to attribute my name to anything that I didn't actually say originally, I don't know who said this, but I repeat it often, and that is the phrase, uh, and this is what usually gets me, death by a thousand cuts, y'all familiar with that? Here's what's weird about my, my makeup, and this isn't, stop trying to psychoanalyze me, first of all. But this is, what, this, is what, this is what I find strange, is that I can handle like major ca- catastrophic situations. Like I've been in some seriously just awful, devastating, horrific moments, and it was like God gave me so much grace. And I was able to stand firm when other people were kind of falling apart and crumbling. But I'm saying the stupidest little thing can happen, and it's the final straw. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so I was like, dude, I gotta learn how I gotta learn how to catch that <laughs> right before before that last person cuts me off on the highway and I lose my mind and forget I'm saved and forget I'm a preacher. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And here's what he shared with me. He said, I've learned that that when I'm starting to kind of spin out like that, that 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 one thing that always seems to go along with it is that I'm I'm not taking the time to express gratitude to God for all the good things he's done in my life. And it almost seemed so simple that it couldn't be the case. But I listened to him, and I took note, and, and I started paying attention. When I would feel myself, or when I do find myself beginning to sort of unravel, if I'll just stop and begin to thank God. And for me, again, this is just my simple makeup, but, but for me, I'll start thanking God for the most, most just, just surface stuff. Like, Lord, thank you that I got a car to drive so I ain't got to walk everywhere. And then it just, it, it, it seems to start to grow and, I, and I'm reminded that God's blessed me with a family and God's given me a home and he's put food on my table and my kids are not starving to death and, and that we live in a country where we're, where we're free, at least for now, and, and I'm not going to live in fear tomorrow. I just want to thank God for the blessings and his goodness for today. And I've learned that it, it just seems like God's presence overwhelms me and all those other things begin to disappear. Now, I haven't aced this one yet. 
But I have noticed in those moments when I have the wherewithal and the mental fortitude to stop and give God thanks, it's as if his Holy Spirit indwells that sense of gratitude. And so as we study, and again, I'm, I'm not saying that we can force the hand of God, but if we will enter into, and I'm talking in, 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 in specifically into a church service, because really what I'm trying to do is prep us to be one body and, and be a formidable presence in this community that we can see lives absolutely fundamentally changed by the power of Christ. If we will enter into his presence, as the Bible says in Psalms, with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise, even if the praise team doesn't sing our favorite song, we just come in with a song in our heart, and we enter the church house and just say, God, I just want to thank you that I can be here. I want to thank you for my brothers and sisters, even that one. I pointed in a very generic direction. But if we'll just enter the presence of, even just entering the house of God, entering the building itself, Entering, enter into the assembly with a, with a sense of gratitude and praise and, and, and not wait till the last song to start, to start worshiping him. Have you ever thought about why we lift our hands when we worship? You have? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we extend? Well, the Bible talks about lifting up holy hands and, and praising with holy hands. But, but, but reality is, and now, if you ever pay attention, if you go to even like a rock concert, uh, they do that, right? Because there's something about, about sort of just something being outside of you that we, we, we sort of naturally begin to extend ourselves and reach for something greater. And in the context of praise... When we extend our hands, and I think I could give you several good reasons why the Bible instructs us to do that, but, but when we extend our hands, there's this, there's this, there's this, this picturesque image of, of surrender, and we're essentially looking toward heaven and, and, and explaining in, in, in just an articulate form of, of, of bodily manifestation that, that what I experience in my life is so much bigger than I am, and it's so much greater than I am. I heard a sermon one time on, remember the story of Mephibosheth in the Old Testament? The son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, who was crippled from childhood, and King David chose to show him mercy, and he brought him into his own house, and he clothed him, and he fed him, and he gave him his, gave him his, his dwelling place, and in all of his days, Mephibosheth would sit at the table with the king. And he would dine in the presence of King David, one of the mightiest men of God in the Old Testament. And, and Mephibosheth, and, and again, I heard this sermon that this, this fellow preached one time. And I can't even remember where he was going with it, but he explained how that Mephibosheth, when he was sitting there, there's a point where it says Mephibosheth would just extend his hand to David as if to say, I'm not here because of me, but because he showed me mercy. Because he was kind enough to bring me into his palace, because he was good enough to feed me at his table, because he's clothed me, because he's given me a place to, to live and a bed to sleep in. And so when we extend our hands in praise and we lift them up toward heaven, we're, we're expressing outwardly that internally we recognize the fact that God is so much greater than we are in everything that we possess, all that we have, the fact that we're here and we're living and we're breathing is because of him. And we begin to lift his praise as we lift the praise to God, God begins to lift up his presence within us. 
So they're not faking it or fabricating it, but God inhabits the praise of his people. Acts 2, we see that there was this sense of praise. And then we see that God's truth was incinerating. I had to alliterate it, y'all know. But we see that God, when Simon Peter preached, again, Simon Peter is one of my favorite dudes in the Bible because he was a screw-up like the rest of us. He was. If the dude was talking, he was probably saying something stupid. Amen? And quit acting like Simon Peter is some saint. Like, he ain't a statue. He was a guy that lived, and he was jacked up, and he was messed up, and he made mistakes, and he said dumb stuff, and he did dumb stuff, and I love him for that. Because I identify with people who make mistakes, right? But when he preached, he knew that his power came from the truth of God's word. God's word, the Bible says, is like a, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It's like a fire that melts the coldest heart. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And when we proclaim the truth of God's word, did you know the most powerful thing on the planet is the spoken word? So powerful, in fact, that God inspired James to say, that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, that no man can contain it, that it sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. In the negative context, or in a negative connotation, the spoken word can be used to, to devastate and damage and destroy lives. The Proverbs writer said, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it will eat the fruit thereof. We've got to learn how to speak the truth of God because it's the truth of God that does the work of God in the lives of people. I ain't got time to finish this. I ain't even going to try. I was trying. I was trying, but we're out of time. So let me, let me just say this. I want to wrap it up by saying this. It, we are, again, I, I hope you all understand this. We're involved in something so much bigger than we are. It's bigger than one guy or two guys or three guys or five guys or 150 of us. This is so much bigger. Amen. I'm personally... Just a, just a confession, but I'm personally not interested in being a part of anything that God is not in. Life's too short. Life is too short, and there's too much actual work that needs to be done in the kingdom of God to waste our time trying to go through operations and performances that God is not a part of. And so it's, it's imperative that we understand as we talk about the church and we talked about the structure and we talked about some very practical things and we'll talk about more practical things pertaining to the church throughout this series but the, the, most, the most vital truth that I could try to convey to you individually and us as a whole is that we need the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit we need God's presence to guide us, to lead us, to order our steps, to bless us, to provide for us he's done that by the way but we need God's power to continue to work and continue to move. So would you agree with me to pray for God, to pour out his spirit, that all this, the work, the labor, all this would not be in vain, that, that we will see God. Do you understand that, that our prayer is that this place will be a, a, a healing place for broken people, that this would be a hospital for people whose hearts have been shattered and they've lost hope and they've given up, you understand, we live in a broken, broken society. And I could tell you story after story. I'm meeting with a young man tomorrow afternoon that, that struggles with alcoholism, and he's considered every day of his life for the past several months of ending it all. 
and he's called out to a preacher for his last hope. He's not even a believer. You understand, people like that are all around us. And, but we're going to fuss and bicker and fight about, well, I don't like colored lights. I don't think a preacher should wear blue jeans. What? Are you freaking kidding me? The world's going to hell in a handbasket, and we're worried about stupid, nonsense, nonsensical preferences. It's insanity. It's insanity, and I've got to think it makes God sick. I don't know how I got on that. Except to say, except to say, we need more than the air that we breathe, God's spirit to move. Everybody in this room has a loved one, probably more than you can count on two hands, that need to find a place where they can hear truth, where they can walk into a building and not be judged for their appearance, not be judged for their background, not be judged because they don't have the, the right last name. We all know people who need a place that's genuine, that's real, that they can come to and hear truth, hear the gospel, and find hope. And that's our prayer for this place. Father, in Jesus' name, we bow our hearts to you. It's hard to hold it together sometimes, Lord, because I, I feel it so deep in my soul that we need something genuine. And we've, we've experienced it, but I, I really believe that we've only, we've only experienced the beginning of something so great and so powerful that one day we'll look back and wonder at how you moved and how you worked and how you provided. Father, please help us to keep our minds firmly, steadfastly fixed on you. Lord Jesus, work in us. Father, create within us a clean heart and renew a right spirit in us. Fill us with your spirit. You instructed us to not be drunk with wine because that's excessive, but we could be excessively filled with your spirit, so we pray for that. Father, that you'd fill us, that you'd use us, that you would glorify yourself through us, and God, that you'd save the lost around us for your glory and your honor, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. I got one announcement for you, and I think John already made it. I just want to remind you that uh, John is in the back, and on Saturday, September the 9th, oh, that's this Saturday, isn't it? At 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, obviously our, our construction crew cleans up their, their debris and their mess, but y'all know how construction guys clean, don't you? So we could use a few people to help clean up on Saturday at 8 o'clock. If you don't mind, if you've got time, uh, John is there in the back, let him know. And then also wanted to remind you that there is a suicide prevention benefit in Bourbon this Saturday evening. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what time it starts. I know that the Ridge Runners are performing at 6 o'clock. And so that's really all you need to be there for anyway. Um, but Ridge Runners are performing at 6 o'clock. And, uh, and so be there. If you don't know where it is, it's in the kind of the downtown district. Just get to Bourbon, roll down your window, and follow the noise. You'll find us. Okay? God bless you guys. Thanks for being here tonight. You are dismissed.
what you say. The great I am speaks only. And I am what I am. Because the great I am said he speaks over us. What you say is true. I am what I am. The great I am Say speaks over me And his word is true Say I am what I am